If we are ever going to be a people who hope in the one thing that can never truly deceive, we must first lose all hope in everything that does. That's what we've been studying in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what is on display in a way that I've probably never seen before in the life of two people like it is in Matt and Betty Bristol's life. Uh, People who are truly learning what it is to rest in the hands of a providentially sovereign and good God who recognize the unexpected, who recognize the inevitabilities of life, who recognize that every breath that they have is precious, and yet this God has put them in this place for a particular purpose. And they are increasingly learning what it means to hope in the one thing that can truly never deceive in the good news of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Solomon has been after for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what he is going to continue to press home in the next couple of weeks as we finish up this book. But this morning... He's going to ask one, one simple question, and, and Matt actually led us to it. You know, in the face of the realities of the inev- inevitability of death, that we do not know when it's going to come. We do not know when the next breath that we take will be the last, and we do not know what things await us around the corner, the surprises and the unexpected. We do know one thing. Right now, we're still breathing. Right now, unlike the, the countless multitudes all around the world who have taken that last breath, who have taken that last hug, that last kiss with those that they love. We, at least in this room, and those who at least listen to this somewhere else, you know one thing, and that's right now you're still breathing. The question is, what are you going to do with the breath that you have left? What are you going to do with the breath that you have left? Solomon is going to say something profoundly simple, And profoundly difficult to actually deal with. That's been the characteristic of the book the entire season. He's going to say one thing. You can live with the breath and the time that God has given you that you have left in one of two ways. You will either live wisely or you will live foolishly. That's it. For all the categories that we have of people... For all the categories that we create in our own culture and in our own minds that we try to fit people into, there are only two categories in the sense in talking about how we are going to live the breath that we have left that really matter. And that's those that live wisely and those that live foolishly. So, Ecclesiastes, we're going to start at the end of chapter 9 where we left off last week and we're going to, by God's grace and the time that we've got, probably most likely not get all the way through the middle of chapter 11. But wherever we stop, we'll pick right back up. Because we will live as wise men and women who find comfort and lasting joy in the hands of our good and faithful God, or we will live as fools, one or the other. Solomon's going to paint a picture of what it looks like to live those two ways, and all I'm going to ask of you is to listen. To listen. So to surrender your own conceptions of yourself, to surrender your own ideas of your own self-importance, to surrender your own ideas of just who you think you really are. Surrender them to the word of God and examine yourself. Where do you find the foolishness? Where do you find the foolishness residing in your own heart? Listen to him. Let's listen. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I want to start in verse 13. He wants to get your attention. I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, and he besieged it. He built a great siege work against this little city. But there was found in it a poor and wise man, and 
He by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But I want you to underline this. But one sinner destroys much good. Unfortunate paragraph break in your Bibles right here. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 1 should follow that clearly. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Here's what Solomon is trying to say, and here's how he wants to get your attention. It only takes a little bit of foolishness. It only takes a little bit of foolishness to destroy a lifetime's worth of wisdom. It only takes one lie to destroy a lifetime building a wise and loving reputation. It only takes one moment of not hoping and trusting in the faithfulness of God to destroy a lifetime, a lifetime's reputation of trying to walk in his footsteps. A little bit of folly is all it takes to destroy all that you have built in your life. A little bit of folly goes a long way. And here's the thing about that section of verses that I want you to see. Your folly, the foolishness of this king, your folly does not just affect you. Your foolishness, here's what I want you to grasp. Your foolishness does not just affect you because some of you are so self-loathing that you're willing to live with your own foolishness for the sake of destroying yourself. But listen to me. Your foolishness does not just affect you. Your foolishness affects everyone around you. Your little bit of foolishness will destroy the people around you, the ones that you love, the one that in your own self-interest you never took into consideration when you began to do the very thing that you're doing. This little set of verses is meant to set the stage for the rest of chapter 10 and the middle of chapter 11. Solomon wants you to get your attention and wants you to grasp hold of this. It just takes a little bit of foolishness to destroy everything. Just a little bit of foolishness to destroy everything. So how do you know how much foolishness resides in you? How do you know if you are a fool? How do you know if you are wise? That's what the rest of this is all about. Let's keep going. Verse 2. How do you know if you are wise or if you're a fool? Well, you need to check your heart. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, first and foremost, let's be really clear. Some of you know what I'm about to say. This is not a political statement. Solomon is not talking, talking donkeys and, and elephants here. In fact, I'm thoroughly surprised that nobody has grabbed a hold of this verse yet. I mean, in all the Bible thumping and campaigning of current politics, I'm really surprised that no one has grabbed this verse. But at the same time, I'm not surprised because I know the biblical ignorance of, of our culture and many of the churches in our culture. And I know how, how often we preach this book. So I'm not surprised on one hand that nobody has grabbed this. But the first thing he's saying is this is not a, a political statement. Solomon is saying that wisdom and foolishness are, mat are not matters of age. They're not matters of IQ. Wisdom and foolishness in the biblical sense are matters of the heart. You can't just read your way into wisdom. Ultimately, biblical wisdom is an issue with your heart. And he's saying that the wise man's heart 
A man or a woman whose heart is wise in the things of God is one who, whose mind and whose will and whose affections lead him into the place of honor, lead them into the place of protection, lead them to the place of depth with their creator. But the fool's heart, the fool's heart just leads him astray. The fool's heart just leads them to the left. Look at verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. So here's the thing about fools. No matter what they do or what they say or how hard they try to keep it in, ultimately you're going to understand that they're a fool. Ultimately their life betrays them. Ultimately their life portrays the reality of their heart. They don't need to walk along the road with some kind of scarlet letter. Their own words, their own actions, their own lives portray the foolishness that's taken over their hearts. You don't have to see a fool fall down. You don't have to see a fool make a huge public error because everything that they say and everything that they do proclaims in technicolor to everyone around them that ultimately they are fools. Solomon in in Ecclesiastes has, has painted the portrait of a fool and how you can tell him by his actions. I'll just hit a few of them in case you don't remember. In chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, he said that the fool delights in shallow humor. He delights in shallow laughter, and his songs are loud, and his songs are noisy, and he finds joy in the debasing of other people. His own actions portray the foolishness that resides in his heart. In chapter 4, verses 5, and in chapter 10, we'll see in a few minutes, a fool is portrayed by his own laziness. Fools are lazy. In chapter 5, verse 3, he said, fools talk way too much. He's going to say that again in a minute, chapter 10. They're caught up in their own words. They like to hear the sound of their own voice, their, their legends in their own minds. They talk way too much and don't know when to shut up. Chapter 9, verse 17, he says that a fool cannot receive good advice. Why can't a fool receive good advice? Why does a fool's heart incline him in the ways of, of destruction and danger? It's because he can't see that he is not the center of the universe. The one thing that inclines a fool to his own foolishness is this idea that he is the center of everything around him. The one hallmark of foolishness is his absolutely unnatural self-interest. Fools fail to see their own foolishness. This is the funniest thing about this verse in verse 3. Everyone around a fool can see how foolish they are because of the way they live. But who can't see it? Who can't see it? The fool. Why can't the fool see it? Because he can't see anything beyond himself. The fool's so caught up in his own self-interest and his own self-righteousness, he can't see that anything he does or says proclaims the folly in his own heart. And so he finds himself just walking down the middle of the road, not knowing the way in which he's walking. Even when he walks on the road, Solomon says, he lacks sense. This is the guy who lives as though he was walking down I-95 at 5 o'clock in the middle of the highway, not knowing he's doing anything wrong. So caught up in himself so central to his own world, so vaulted and lofted in his own ideas of himself, he can't see that his own heart, he can't see that his own heart portrays in everything that he does and everything that he says that he's a fool. Now, if you dare, husbands, ask your wife if this is you. If you dare. You don't have to do it now. The wise person, on the other hand, Solomon says, lives with humility. The fool is caught up in his own self-interest and 
a legend in his own mind that he can't live with any proper sense of humility, not only towards others, but towards the Creator. But the wise person lives with humility, sober-mindedness, a right understanding of himself and his, and his relationship to his Creator. He lives with the urgency of eternity. He has a living hope, a deep and abiding living hope in the providential God who has rescued him. He lives deep, he lives well, he lives with joy for the glory of God. That is what Solomon has been saying throughout this entire book. Here's another way the wise man shows his life. Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. When you live with biblical wisdom and you have a deep and abiding hope and trust in the living God who has created you and has rescued you and has redeemed you and is transforming you to the image of his son, when the foolish ruler, like Solomon was talking about earlier in chapter 9, or when those you live with and work with come against you and the fool rises in his anger against you, your security is not built upon their perception of you. Your security is not built upon their perception of your capacities. But the fool, the fool hears the first word of correction, the first word of anger, whether it's justified or not, as an offense and assault against his person. And because he is what is most important, and his conception of himself must be right, instead of staying in peace and waiting for a moment to speak a kind word or a truthful word or a word of wisdom, he flees, he runs. He packs his bags and runs. He picks up the ball and walks away and doesn't want to play anymore. Because it's not going the way he wants it to go because he's the one that should determine how it works. A wise man is seen in how he deals with foolishness that comes into his life. He doesn't pack his bags and leave, but he sits and he waits and keeps his mouth shut. And he looks for a time to speak a word of wisdom, a word of kindness, knowing that a quiet word of wisdom can offset so much foolish hostility and anger. But a fool, even when he thinks he's Righteous in his indignation. Rises up with his voice. Rises up with his offense. And shows again by his mouth and his actions that he's nothing more than a fool. Nothing more than a fool. Let's keep going. We've got a lot to go through. I want to keep talking about that one. Next way you know if you are a fool, the next way you can identify foolishness in your own life and heart is you can see that fools love the company of other fools. It's another characteristic of foolishness. Did you know that? Fools love the company of fools. I tried to think, could you say fools of a feather flock together? I don't know that that works together. I don't know. But fools like the company of fools. Look at verse 5. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and, and princes walking around on the ground like slaves. And listen to me before we get too far in this. This is not a text about social justice. This is not a text that's trying to exalt or denigrate class. It's a text that's talking about competence. It's not talking about class. It's about competence. You see, back in those days, it, it was generally understood that the wealthy or the privileged or the royal were raised in an environment where they understood how to lead a nation, how to lead an army, how to fight a battle, how to govern a people. It wasn't generally understood that the poor or the wealthy or the, or the peasant understood how to rise to lead a nation. They weren't raised in that environment. The wealthy were. The royal were. And here's what Solomon's getting at. He's saying in this situation, competence is being ignored. Experience is being ignored. Fools are being promoted. You ever seen that happen? You ever been in an environment where 
wisdom and experience and competence are ignored and foolishness, and however we're going to define that, is exalted, is lifted high. I mean, princes were trained to lead armies. And stuff goes wrong when you take a guy who's never been trained to lead an army, put into a place where he's supposed to lead an army into battle to protect the people. Don't get presidential. But something goes wrong when you exalt incompetence over competence. Things begin to fall apart. Look at verses 16 and 17. We don't have time. I'm about to skip ahead because I want to do that one on its own. But look at verses 16 and 17. Um. Oh, I didn't Did I copy it in here. Yeah. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and, and not for drunkenness. It goes well for a people when the experienced and the wise, when the competent are in a place to rule. It goes poor for a people when, when those who do not know how to do what they are called to do are put into a place of leadership, when they're put into a place of, of power. More time is spent, in Solomon's example, providing a luxurious lifestyle for themselves and caring for their people and caring for their kingdom. It goes the same in churches. It goes the same in churches. You see this played out unbelievably in the next generation of Solomon's life. We've talked about earlier in Ecclesiastes how part of his lament in an earlier chapter might have been understanding that the person he was going to hand his kingdom off to was his son Rehoboam, who was an absolute fool. And we saw in 1 Kings how within a generation, Rehoboam had absolutely decimated the kingdom that Solomon had built. Well, do you know how he did it? He exalted the wisdom of fools over the wisdom of the wise. When he became king in Israel and the people were calling him, how are we going to lead this kingdom? How are we going to lead this people in a way that is is faithful to the covenant God, the one that we know, the one who has given himself to us? How do we do it? Rehoboam ignored the wisdom of the elders, those who had served with his father Solomon. Rehoboam, who had grown up with the wisdom of his father Solomon all of his life, whose elders who had been with Solomon, who had learned from Solomon, who who had the experience of being with Solomon, he ignored the wisdom of his elders. And you know who he listened to? his own friends, the people he put in positions because he liked them, the people who would tell him what he wanted to hear because they got their paycheck from him. He ignored wisdom, and he elevated foolishness, and he lost the entire kingdom. I mean, if we don't live in a culture that does this, and again, I'm not talking politically, if, we don't, if, if you don't see that we live in a culture that absolutely elevates foolishness, I don't know what news you read what TV you watch, what radio you listen to. We are a culture that absolutely elevates the foolishness of celebrity over the wisdom of experience and competence. I, mean, you know, I, don't, I don't know how many generations it was ago. I, I, I don't have an accurate number. When, when doctors and lawyers and statesmen were elevated as heroes and those to turn to for wisdom and understanding, and now, now we turn to Paris Hilton. We were people obsessed with celebrity that all we find in our news and on the covers of our papers and our magazines are celebrities who are famous for nothing other than being famous. And we exalt their behavior, we exalt their foolishness, and we look at it and go, oh, if we could just be them. I mean, I'll never forget, to the day I die, I'll probably never forget this, and this isn't personal about this person, but after 9-11, I'll never forget turning on the news and flipping around the channels, and I was watching MTV because they were covering it, and I was really curious how they were covering it, and I'll never forget. They had this moment where they said, don't go away. We have to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to hear from somebody about what's going on, how we should handle it, and how we can deal with it as a people. And when I got back, you know who it was? 
Ja Rule. <laughs> Again, I don't know him. I don't hate him. But really, in a time of cultural crisis, do I really want to hear from Ja about how I'm supposed to handle this? I mean, does he have an inside understanding on what's really going on over there? Look, man, we are in a culture of fools who love to gather around other fools. We are legends in our own minds with an absolutely exalted sense of self-importance. And it goes wrong. It goes very bad when foolishness is elevated over competence. Next thing you want to know about fools, go to verse 8. Fools are short-sighted. Fools are short-sighted. And in their short-sightedness, they fail to actually count the true costs of what, we're, of what they're doing. And this one has been hard for me personally. This one's been challenging for me personally. This one probably hits home the most when I think about where the foolishness that Solomon's talking about resides most deeply in my own life. Go to verse 8. He who, who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, this isn't the part that I'm talking about most personally. We'll get to that one. But I want you to get this because these next two verses are going to sound kind of crazy. Like, how do they actually fit in there? And what point does this have to, to do with anything? Well, historically, in the Old Testament, if you were to look up the words that Solomon uses in this particular verse of verse 8, you'll find the only time people ever dig pits and the only time people actually break through walls in the way he's talking about it is when they're trying to hurt somebody else. The only time a man ever digged a pit in the Old Testament with the word that Solomon is talking about is when he was trying to get somebody else to fall into it or trying to get his animal to fall into it. You know, man's livelihood oftentimes came by his, by his flocks and by his ox who could pull his carts and, and then by the animals that he could lead in a herd. And if you could dig enough pits for enough animals to fall in, you could really decimate a man's livelihood. And so Solomon's saying the fool, he's so short-sighted, so short-sighted that he never counts the cost that if he plays with fire, he might very well get burnt. If he plays with fire, he might very well get burnt, but he's so consumed and so short-sighted by his own righteousness and by his own vindication that he busts through a wall not thinking there might be a serpent there that might bite me. He digs a pit for another man to fall in, to hurt him, to maim him, to pay him back, never thinking that, you know what, in the process, I might fall in. I might cover that thing so well that I'm walking back and I forget where I put it. And I fall in and get hurt and die. So so short-sighted but he never actually counts the costs. Verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt, verse 10, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one who succeeds. Fools are so short-sighted in their work, so hasty in their work, that they don't make adequate preparation for it. They don't actually count the cost of what it's going to take to do what they need to do. And do they not only endanger themselves, but they endanger those around them because in their haste and in their short-sightedness, they don't actually count the cost of, of what it actually takes to get it done. But here's the thing that really hit me. And this is where you take it from what Solomon is saying very literally and how it applies to our life to what really can this do to our life if we were to actually think about it. What really would this have to say about our life if we were to actually stop for a second and actually think about what he's saying and how it applies to us. And in verse 10, the thing that Solomon is trying to get after in relation to the fool is that the wise person, the one who recognizes and doesn't get so short, short-sighted as to, but looks at what he has to accomplish, looks at the trees that he's got to cut, 
Look at, looks at the tools that he's got, assesses the situation and the shape of the tools with which he's given, and he makes adequate preparation for it. He's the one that will get the most done. He's the one that works smarter, not necessarily harder. A wise man learns to think with a long-term plan. A wise man looks to look, begins to learn to look at the whole scope of things. Doesn't live so short-sighted. Doesn't fail to count the cost of what it's going to take for him to do what he's called to do. But in the end, he ends up working much smarter, not just much harder. And he ends up getting a whole lot more done. And this is where it's hit me the most this week. Really in the past three years, this is a verse that I have had to deal with in my own heart and in my own life for the past few years, probably like I've never dealt with anything else so practically. See, wise people know where they want to go, and they have a plan for how they're going to get there. Wise people know where they want to go, and they have a plan for how they're going to get there. And I'm going to be honest, that has never been a strength of mine. I have never been the one who has sat down, who has mapped out what he needed to accomplish, where he thought he needed to be, who he thought he needed to be, and then plotted out a plan to see that end accomplished. That's never been me. I wasn't just wired like that, but in my own sin, I was, I was lazy to a point of it. And you know, I kind of fumbled along thinking that if I just continued upon, upon, a, upon a certain path, I might end up bumping into the right thing at the right time, in the right place that... God would want me to be. And Solomon said, the wise man, not the fool. The wise man knows clearly where he needs to go. He knows clearly how he wants to get there. And here's what I've discovered in the last three or four years. I want to be a good pastor. And when the breath that I've got, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many more breaths there are in these two lungs. I don't know. But in what he's given me and what I've got left, I want to be a good pastor who preaches the gospel faithfully, clearly, accurately, and increasingly becomes more adept at taking the gospel and applying it to the realities of the life that we live. And I want to pastor this church well. That's what I want to do. You know what I also want to do? I want to be a good husband. I want to be a husband who increasingly loves his wife like Christ loves the church. You know what else I want to do? I want to be a good dad. I want to be a dad whose kids love him, trust him, respect him, and love the church and love the gospel. And here's what I've had to learn. Those are the only three things I really want to be. Those are the only three things I really want to do, just three of them. And here's what I've had to learn. They don't just happen. They don't just happen. I have not yet woken up, stumbled out of the bed, bounced downstairs, into a deep and abiding, loving trust in Jesus. I've yet to just wake up and bump along into a deep and abiding faithfulness and romantic love and care for my wife. I've yet to just hop out of the car when I get home from work and walk into the house with a real sense of purpose and intentionality to lead my son and to lead my daughter and to lead my entire family into loving Jesus for who he is and for understanding who they are in relation to him. I have never just come home and have that happen. You never just bump into holiness. You don't just stumble along and bump into what you want to be. You have to know where you want to go And you've got to make a plan for how you're going to get there. 
And so here's what I've had to do. I've had to look at the things that I feel like God is calling me to be. Who is he calling me to be? Who has he said that I am? What does it take for me to actually fulfill that calling and trust upon him, dependence upon him, and what do I need to do? As a man who has a deep and abiding love for Jesus, how does that grow? How does that grow? It doesn't just happen. What do I need to do? What do I need to learn? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to pursue? How do I love my wife? Christ has loved the church, not just in the end, but today, this week. How does my job affect how I'm going to do that? How do I plan to actually show her how much I love her and serve her in the way that he's called me to do? How do I love my children and serve them and surprise them with joy this week? You've got to know who you are, where you're going, and how you're going to get there. A fool just attempts to bump into things. A fool just thinks that at some point he's going to find himself in the right place at the right time, exactly where God wanted him to be, and all of a sudden he would wake up and the Shekinah glory would just fall when he walked around, kind of like the cloud around Pigpen and the Peanuts. You just have the glory cloud. Perfect Christian, perfect husband, perfect wife, perfect dad, perfect mom, perfect friend. That's how I lived my life. That's how I lived my life. Capable just enough to get by where people wouldn't worry. Just smart enough. Just athletic enough. Just friendly enough. Just adaptable enough. New situations, new circumstances, new people, new things. Always able to do it. Never really understanding where I needed to go, wanted to go, where God wanted me to go and how I was going to get there. Just hoping that at some point I would bump into what I was doing. God has been very gracious and faithful and loving and patient with me. And by his grace, for your good, he has changed that in me. Perfect? No. Not at all. Growing? Yes. But the question you've got to deal with is where are you going? Who is he calling you to be? What does he want your family to look like? What kind of man or woman is the scripture calling you to be? And how are you going to get there? Do you have any idea? Have you ever actually even thought about it? Have you ever actually given a moment's thought to how you were going to become the person that God has called you to be? You have to answer that question. Because without an answer to that question, without at least any intentionality, Towards that question, you'll one day wake up, and this is where I was, and I don't want anybody else there any longer than they have to be. You will wake up one day, and all of your want-tos, all the things you want to do, all the things you want to be, will become wish-I-hads and should-haves. All of your want-tos will be, I wish I should have. And you'll wake up saddled, with the crushing weight of regret and despair and frustration. And it doesn't have to be that way because you still have breath. And the most beautiful thing we talked about last week about being a living dog versus a dead lion is that at least a living dog has a chance to repent. He still has breath. He still has life. It doesn't have to continue on this way, but you've got to have an qu- answer to this question. Where are you going? And how do you even intend to get there? Because if you don't have any intention about it, all of your best intentions, all of your want-tos will turn into wish-I-hads and 
Verse 11 gives you the consequence of that. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. Who cares if he's a good snake charmer with a cool flute if he doesn't charm the snake? Who cares? He's just a dead man on the street with a deadly snake running around in front of people. Who really cares if he can charm snakes if he didn't actually do it? Who really cares if you want to be a good husband, a good wife, a faithful Christian, a good employee, uh, whatever it is, if you don't actually do it? All of those want-tos will eventually become a wish-I-hads, and people will wind up dead all around you. Your foolishness will not just affect you in your life. It will affect everybody connected to you. What good is it? What good do all your want-tos do you? Now listen, I know the tendency that the majority of us have. Don't, don't sit there and listen to me and give in to the temptation that I know is rising up in some of your hearts and say, oh, so now I've been here long enough. All right, six months, two months, one month, a year. Now he's finally gotten away from what God is doing in our life and the power of the gospel. And now he's going to go tell me what I have to go do. Oh, walk out of here and make yourself a good man. Make yourself a good woman. Make yourself a good husband. That's not what I'm talking about at all. The process of the cultivating of the soul is the unbelievably beautiful and gracious work of God in us and with us as we labor with the Holy Spirit as we labor with the power of God residing in us to conform us into the image of his Son, as we labor with the Holy Spirit, our soul is cultivated to reflect the character of Christ. Our soul is cultivated and our life responds. We end up slowly, increasingly becoming the people that we feel like God is calling us to be, but it takes intentionality on our part. It takes a willingness to say, this is who God is calling me to be. This is what the Scripture says I'm to be. And here's a sober-mindedness and an assessment about where I actually am. And with the faith and the faithfulness of God, with a hope and a living hope in the faithfulness of God, He has ordained that that cultivation process takes place through your obedience. He has ordained the process of transforming you into the man or woman of God that he's calling you to be goes hand in hand with his work and your obedience. Do you know where you're going? Do you know how, in any remote way, you might actually get there? Please, please, do not wake up one more day with the weight of all of the I want to's. I want to be. I want to do. Don't wake up another day under the weight of those things having turned to a wish I should have. I'll never forget this came crashing home to me most clearly and powerfully. Unfortunately, in God's timing, it wasn't my time. wasn't my timing. But as we were going through everything with, with our son Owen, and I remember sitting at lunch one day by myself. I was praying and I was, I was thinking, but you know, what, what do I do? I mean, how, how do I respond? I've got an entire church staring at me in some degree wondering how is he going to respond to all the stuff that they're going through. And I remember sitting at, at lunch trying to wrestle through that. And, and as clear as clear can be, I remember hearing in my, in my heart, 
Who do you think you are? What kind of man did you think you would be in this? And I wrote down a piece of paper. All the things that I thought I would be when I faced this situation. All the things that I thought that I would be as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, facing the impending loss of his son. And I wrote this list down. And I looked at this list, and there wasn't a thing on there that resembled who I really was. And I realized that my life had been given to want-tos. It had been given to want-tos. And everything about what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be had turned into I wish I should have. Because here I was facing one of the most difficult things I've ever faced in my entire life. Entire life. And I wasn't the man that I thought I was in the midst of facing it. Do not wake up another day with the want-tos turning into I should have. Where are you going? Who is God calling you to be? Last thing for the morning. We're going to pick this up next week because I want to sit on something for a few minutes. Last thing he's saying. Actually, flip over to chapter 11. I'm going to just throw myself a curveball. Chapter 11. How do we deal with some of this stuff? How do we deal with understanding who God is calling to be and then actually making a plan and getting there? Some of us, if you're like me, if you're like I I was, you have all kinds of reasons why you're not where you thought you would be. You have all kinds of excuses. You have all kinds of answers. You have all kinds of circumstances that came into place for why you're not doing what it is you feel like God has called you to do, why you're not the person that you feel like God has called you to be. And listen to what... Listen to the encouragement. I want you to get the encouragement from chapter 11. Chapter 11, Solomon is going to say in this first part that the wise person, the wise person ultimately trusts in the providence of a very good God, the graciousness of a very good and loving God, and then lives his life deeply. Lives his life deeply. Chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it. After many days, the fool has no idea where he's going. Ultimately, no plan for getting there. It's the fool whose life begins to crumble around him. And the wise person recognizes his need for understanding who God's called him to be and for making a plan to get him there. And here's what Solomon says. Cast your bread out on the waters, for you'll find it in many days. You see, back in those days, the most lucrative way to attain a living for a merchant was in trading. It wasn't in person-to-person sales, but it was in trading goods. A man would take the goods that he had created and he'd find a merchant and he would sell them to a merchant and a merchant would put him on his boat and take him to another land where he would sell them for a much greater profit. He would come back from that land with the profit and hopefully if he was a good merchant, he would split the profit with the man that he had bought the goods from in the beginning. And if you could cast your bread out on the waters, it will return to you in many days. But here's the thing, it takes a while. Trading was not a fast or expedient method of, of making money. No internet. No inter- online shopping carts. You trusted a man, you made a contract with a man, he took your stuff, and he took it to another place. But in the end, when he finally came back, when he finally came back, there would be reward. Solomon's saying is the delay, the time it takes to get to the end with which you're after, is no reason to not move forward. The time it takes to become the person that God is calling you to be is you look at who you really are, and I pray to God 
that you, that you take the time to make a sober assessment of yourself. A sober assessment of yourself. And that you can deal honestly with him. And say, really? This is who I am. This is the state of my heart. And when you come to that place and you realize where you are and where he's calling you to be and, and you sit out on making a plan to get there, don't let the time that you think it's going to take keep you from actually stepping forward. Don't let the delay stop you. Cast your bread out on the waters. Go. Move forward in the process. In verse 2, give a portion to seven or eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, here's his thing. Move forward. Don't worry about the delay, but don't be foolish either. Hedge your bets. Don't stick the entire retirement fund into one account. Diversify. That's what he's saying. Don't just trust in the one boat going over there. Spread it out over seven or eight. Because you don't know what's going to happen. Hedge your bets. Don't be foolish. Remember, the unexpected may occur. So plan for it. Plan for it. Realize that it's God. It's God alone who knows what's going to happen next. Who knows when the last breath you're going to take is going to be and what's coming right around the corner when you pull out of this parking lot. Realize the unexpected, Solomon's been saying. Plan for it, but don't avoid it. Keep going. Don't avoid it. Don't let the delays slow you down or keep you from going. Don't let the fear of what's going to come around the corner keep you from moving forward and growing. Plan for it, understand it, and keep going. Verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Listen, with so much so much out of your control. With so much of life in a fallen world that is outside of your control, the unexpected that will come, the lack of understanding of when you will actually take that last breath with so much out of your hands that is no excuse for inactivity. As you sit there and take an assessment of where God is calling you to go and who he's calling you to be or even in very practical matters of life and things he's calling you to do and you're wrestling with your own obedience towards that, Listen, not knowing what's coming next, don't let that be an excuse for inactivity. If ever anything characterized me for the majority of my life, it was this. I am the one who would look around and say, what's the weather pattern? What are the clouds like? There's the storm. That storm may happen. That storm may happen. If that storm happens, this is going to happen. If this happens, this has to happen. And so therefore, we've got to do this instead of this. And I had scenarios for everything. And there's wisdom in planning. But you know what happened? I never actually sowed anything. I never actually sowed anything. And here's what Solomon says. For so many of us, you're going to look around and you're going to see all the unexpected things and all the things that could happen and the thunderstorms that are rolling in and the possibility, like he said, of the tree falling in the forest. You don't know. And what's going to happen is you're going to let that be an excuse to not do anything. And you're going to sit there with a righteous answer for why you don't do something and why you fail in the simplest measures of obedience towards God and trust when in reality it's your own fear of not being able to control anything. You're not going to know. And he said, recognize who God is. Recognize who you are. Recognize where God is calling you to be. And you know what? Go. Be obedient. If he says to go sow the seed, there's thunder, thunderclouds coming. Sow the seed. Be obedient. The unexpected is 
There's no excuse for inactivity. Take the responsibility that God is calling you to take. Whatever it is in your life. If he's calling you to take a measure of responsibility, take it. Serve the need you see around you that you're really nervous about doing and serving. You don't know how people are going to respond. You don't know what people will think. You don't know if they'll accept you or reject you. You see a need, serve it. Don't let the impending possibilities keep you from doing the very thing that God is calling you to do in obedience. Trust him and not what you can control around you. If he's asking you to step out and start something new, do it. Know where he's calling you to go. Make a plan to get there. Trust that he is the one who knows all of the unexpected and all of the circumstances. Be wise about what's around you and what could happen, but don't let that keep you, keep you from being obedient. Verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. If you keep delaying, if you keep delaying obedience, if you keep delaying obedience to the thing that God is calling you to do and the person he's calling you to be, don't think that one day the day will come when you'll work it all out. Don't think that one day everything in your life is going to align and it will no longer be as difficult. Don't think that in the next season or the next time, all of a sudden all these unexpected or these struggles you go through are going to line up and life is going to be easy. And when it's easier, when this gets taken care of and we can do this, then we'll attend to this issue. Don't think that when life slows down and, and, and all the things that you wrestle with in your life kind of ease up, then you'll deal with God on the state of your heart and the person he's calling you to be. You'll, 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 you'll deal with the, who he's calling you to be and how you're going to get there when this particular thing subsides in your life. Don't delay thinking that at some point down the road it'll all just work itself out and you'll have the perfect time to be obedient. Don't delay obedience. Don't let not knowing what's going to happen keep you from being obedient to the thing that God is calling you to do and the person he's calling you to be. Trust that he alone does know what's going to happen. Trust that he alone knows what's coming around the corner. Trust that he alone knows what's best for you and for you for his glory. Trust him in that. Have a living and abiding hope in the goodness of God's providence over you and all of the creation that in his love he spoke into existence and be obedient. And here's something I love about this, and this is what I like about Redemption Hill. And we're kind of in the, the waning spring, beginning summer, so the crowd is sometimes thinner, sometimes larger, sometimes made up of different people, but when everybody who calls it home is here, when it comes to church plants, we're one of the most uniquely diverse groups of people that I've ever been around, at least in this culture. Not only ethnically or socially, but even in, in, in age, in generation. And here's something that I love about this verse that gets missed so often. Solomon says, in the morning sow your seed, and in the evening don't withhold your hand. Here's what he's saying. Being obedient to God and what he's calling you to do and who he's calling you to be is not just for one time in your life. Obedience is not just for one particular season. 
Obedience and pursuing of, of a living and abiding hope in Jesus and an obedience towards Him and who He's calling you to be isn't just for when you're young. It's not just for all the young people who are unencumbered with families and jobs and careers and, and climbing ladders and raising kids and doing all those kinds of things. Don't withhold your hand in the morning. Don't withhold your hand in the evening. Honestly, more people are talking about this and, and maybe I don't have a platform to talk about it because of my age, but other people do, so I'll lean on them. Seriously, what is retirement? When it comes to obedience to God, when it comes to pursuing who he is and who he's calling you to be and how he's going to use you in your life, really, what is retirement? I mean, I love that Matt and Betty. What's retirement? I mean, these guys are down here, have been all over the world, serving God all over the country, all over the place. And the first time we met, I think they had enrolled in Farsi lessons. I mean, in, in the season of their life that they're in, they could be doing anything. They have worked hard, served faithfully, given themselves to what God is calling them to be, and now they've recognized a need, and they're taking Farsi to go reach a people that God has brought to the city. Morning and the evening, obedience is not contingent upon generation and age. It's just going to look different at different times. The issue isn't when the right time to be obedient is. It's whether or not you're being obedient with what God is calling you to do and who he's calling you to be. Do you know? Do you know where you are going? Do you know who God is calling you to be? Do you have any conceivable plan or intentionality for how by God's grace and power, by, your, by his spirit, you are going to take steps into being that person? Do you know? You've got to have an answer for that. To avoid the life of the fool that Solomon has talked about throughout this entire book. To avoid living carelessly with the breath that he's given us, the grace that he has given us, the people that he has given us, the families that he has given us, the opportunities that he has given us. To avoid living carelessly with all that God has graced us with in this life. You've got to have an answer to that question. You've got to take time to be honest with who you are. Be honest with God. He already knows. He's just waiting for you to be honest with yourself. He's waiting. Now are we going to be intentional about discerning who he's calling us to be as individuals and who he's calling us to be as a church and are we going to have any conceivable understanding of how we're going to take steps towards becoming that? Life Life, Solomon said, is unpredictable. Left to your own five senses, it's enigmatic. It's vanity. It, you can't figure it all out. As soon as you chase one illusion, it's like that toddler we've said, chasing the bubbles in the air. You chase it with everything you've got, you catch it, and just when you think you've got it in your hand, it pops. And we spend our lives carelessly chasing all these illusions that can never really satisfy, never really fulfill, never really provide the meaning and the satisfaction that we're searching for with all of our hearts, the only way that it can be found, the only way it can be found is by losing all hope in all of those things that continue to deceive and by learning to increasingly trust in the hope of who God is for us in Jesus that can never really deceive. That leads to living a life of wisdom. By God's grace, my prayer for us and as individuals, as families, and, and as a church is that we would be people who would hear, hear the truth of God's word 
in Scripture. We would hear the truth of God's word as it's spoken and as it's read, and we would be obedient to it. That we would be obedient to it. That we would trust him, that we would make a sober assessment of who we are, and that we would look at who he's calling us to be and trust that he has ordained our obedience to help us get there. By God's grace, that's my prayer for us. May we be that. May we be that people and that church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your your word, your living and active word. Your word that has the capacity by your spirit to cut sharper and deeper and more accurate than any instrument devised by man. I pray that your word cuts deep, that it cuts sharp, that it cuts accurately down to the illusions in our heart, the foolishness that resides in our heart, that it lays waste, that it lays waste to all the foolish ways that we continue to live our life. God, for your glory, for your glory, Lord, help us to want to be a people who live wisely, for you. Change those desires of our heart. And Lord, let us in obedience, enable us, empower us by your spirit in obedience to you to discern who you're calling us to be and to be intentional about being a people who are going to head that way. But we ask this, not that we would win any kind of medals of our own in the church, that we could parade ourselves around like good Christians, good trophies, but that obedient life lived in dependence upon you for your glory, will reflect to a watching world the sufficiency of who you are for us. That we would have an answer for the hope with which we live, the hope with which we, we, we depend upon, that people would see that we live the different kind of hope through our obedience. And we could give an answer to that. But we ask that through our obedience and through your transformation of us in this church, you will be made great in this city. We ask these things, Lord, because of your Son and empowered by your Spirit. Amen.